Uh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're continuing our journey through the Old Testament book of Malachi. This morning we'll be in Malachi chapter 2. It's found for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And you're welcome to turn there on your own Bibles, your own smartphones, or if you'd like, you can use the chair Bible there in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that one. And today's passage is found on page 753 in that Bible. As you're turning there, I want to get you into the, where, where this passage is going to go today. I want you to think of a one-word sign that gets your attention. Danger. Now, you may ignore it at that point, but it gets your attention. You notice it. In today's passage, very simply, Malachi holds up to his people, to God's people. He's not going out to the pagan nations. He's going to those already in a relationship with the God of Israel by covenant, those who've received grace. He's holding up a sign to them that says, danger, a big sign. And it's a danger sign for us as well. And so with that introduction, would you please turn with me now to Malachi chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through 16, as we look at God's word together. <clears throat> Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before difficult, challenging texts such as this, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would give us truth for our growth to challenge us, to critique us, to convict us that we might repent. Lord, we pray that you would be true to your promise, that you would send your spirit even now and open this text up. How we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump in to this text, kind of remind you of where we've been in the book of Malachi. So Malachi begins with him coming to his entire culture and pointing out how fearless they are and not in a good way. He, he's not complimenting them. He's coming before them and saying, where is your fear of the Lord our God? You come before him. You don't follow his rules. You're not doing things that honor him. In fact, you're doing things that dishonor him. You have these 
fearless worshipers coming and providing fearless worship and fearless sacrifices, and they're being led by fearless priests, and it's all no good, he says. He then goes and turns to the religious leaders and critiques the priests and tells them, y'all are profaning the very name of God by doing this. You are leading the people into danger. And now he steps back from talking to everybody. He becomes one of the people again. He starts saying us and we. And he looks around at his culture and he points out how there's major social upheaval in the nation. What many around him might think has nothing to do with God at all. It's just a socioeconomic reality. Instead, he says, no, this is dangerous. And it's a surge of divorces for faithless reasons. And what we're gonna see here today is that he's gonna focus on how much their poor image of God, how they've treated God poorly, how that actually in God's community, how that actually comes out to how they treat each other poorly as well. These divorces, it turns out, were about not trusting God. So I wanna ask the Christians in the room, you ever struggled to trust God, especially in real life issues, when things aren't working out, when your plan is not being followed by our creator? Well, this passage is for you. Because in Malachi's day, it was practical issues where they didn't trust God. And in these practical issues, when problems arose, instead of demonstrating faithfulness, these Old Testament men looked to the idols that we still look to. Safety, security, prosperity. That's where my life can be found by doing what they require. Because they assumed deep down God could not be trusted to provide. And that gets us to our theme for today. This is kind of where I want to land on this passage. It's this. It's that faithless people break promises in order to bind themselves to beloved idols. Faithless people break promises in order to bind themselves to beloved idols. So we're going to see a treacherous people. They disregard God through idolatrous marriages after hypocritical divorces. So the first thing we see here is it's a treacherous people. It may sound harsh just to come out and say that, but look at this overall passage before we dive into the particulars. God calls his people faithless. Verse 10, 11, 14, 15, 16, a lot of times. It's the Hebrew word for treacherous. It's the Hebrew word for deceitful. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, this word is all over the place, and it basically means the opposite of righteous. This is not a word you want God describing you as if you're in a covenant relationship with him. For those who've been changed by grace, who've been brought into a relationship with the creator, we do not want the creator God to look at us and say, you're treacherous. And they are. Five times he says this in this handful of verses. But notice what else he says here. He says, we've got profaning the covenant in verse 10. That doesn't sound good. We got abomination followed by profaning the sanctuary in verse 11. We've got covered in violence in verse 16. This is not a picture of a healthy community. Their poor worship practices led by their wretched spiritual leaders have been bearing putrid fruit in their community. They're a treacherous people who break promises so they can then bind themselves to a beloved idol. And we see that first and foremost in these idolatrous marriages. 
Malachi begins by standing in the crowd as one of the people, and he basically asks, are we not God's special family? Why then do we hurt each other by breaking the promises that God has made to us and then breaking the promises we made back to God? You see, what he shows here is that God's people are in covenant with God. They knew that. But what they knew in only a shadow, we know now in reality. That through our union with Christ, the New Testament tells us that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that what's true of him is true of us. It's called union. We're put in union with Christ. And it's a beautiful blessing, but it's not just about us as individuals. It says the church is put in union with Christ. So you know know what that means? That means we're in union with each other. When we call you to stand up and say hi to your family and get a couple hugs during the greeting time, it's not just to be witty and make you chuckle. It's the truth. We're a family in Jesus. We are united together in him. And so what we do affects each other. The things we do in the church can have effect on each other. The sins that we indulge in as an individual can have profound effects in the community. Do you believe that? Because the folk in Malachi's day didn't. They were faithless. They were profaning the covenant. Even worse, it says they profaned the sanctuary. Okay, what's going on with that? I want you to think of a typical news uh, podcast. What's what I'm looking for? Broadcast, that's it. Typical news broadcast where the president has made an announcement. Sometimes they'll say, well, the White House today said, and none of us in the room thinks the building spoke, right? Right, and that's the same kind of figure speech being used here. It's not that they profaned the edifice. The sanctuary was a stand-in for God himself. They profaned God himself. Even worse, the New Testament tells us what we know and they didn't is that the temple, that building, was actually a representation of Jesus himself. That animals were killed there to postpone God's judgment on his people's sin. But Jesus, we know, was killed to finally absorb the judgment for God's people's sin, making that building obsolete, unneeded, not necessary. So through the eyes of the New Testament, we can see here they were profaning the very salvation of God. They were disdaining his gracious activity towards them. What were they doing that's so bad? What is so profane? Well, verse 10 tells us they're committing an abomination. Now, you don't even have to know what that word means, do you, to know that's major bad juju. You do not want an abomination on your life, right? It means wicked. It means disgusting. It means abhorrent. It's used all of those ways. This word is used repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy to describe idolatry, which gives us a hint of what's happening here. What is so profane against God himself is that his people have married the daughter of a foreign God. And notice what it doesn't say, because he probably heard it wrong. It does not say they married the daughter of foreign parents. It says they married the daughter of a foreign God. This is not about racism. This is not about ethnicity. This is about worship and religion. The Old Testament is full of non-Israelite, non-Hebrew people who came in to that community and were part of that covenant family. The book of Ruth, she's a Moabitess and she's the hero precursor of Christ in that book. There's many examples. This is not about racism. What he's saying is that when you marry the daughter of a foreigner, she needs to convert and become a daughter 
of Israel, one of my people in covenant with me. God specifically says, do not marry these foreign women who don't convert because what they'll do is they'll take your heart and the heart of your children away from me. This is about worship and idolatry. It's not about racism. See what's going on here. Why it's so bad is this. These men looked at their lives. They looked at the challenges around them. They're rebuilding a country after conquest. Their economy is in a shambles. It's really hard, but the pagans, the non-Hebrews who stayed during that time, they've actually prospered. They've got property. They've got a savings account. They've got discretionary income. They've got stuff. We got nothing. And so they said, you know what? God can't be trusted to provide for me. If I follow his rules, I won't, I won't make it. So instead of worshiping him, I will worship security. I'll worship prosperity. I'll worship safety. And I'll grab one of the daughters of these prosperous pagans all around me. That's the abomination. These marriages were a manifestation of the idolatry in their heart. I mean, remember where we have been. Malachi has been confronting over and over again their disregard for God's immensity, let's call it. God for them was not high, lofty, magnificent, all-powerful, completely holy, and dreadfully wrathful in his sin as he has revealed himself. That he wasn't any of that to them. God was small. He was provincial, like the land they lived in like the land they returned to. So for these men, their small God couldn't handle the real life challenges they faced of a tough economy. Security and prosperity, they knew, came from a wife with assets and connections. And so since we all, we only obey the gods we trust, they did not trust the Lord of hosts and they trusted in this scheme instead. So Malachi comes along as an Old Testament prophet in verse 12 and he prays for their destruction. Did you catch that? He doesn't slap them on the hand. He prays for them to be kicked out of God's covenant people, drug away with the rest of the garbage because the cure for cancer is to cut it out. You chemo it to death, right? This treacherous abomination is a cancer that will destroy the nation if left unchecked because God doesn't play around with his holiness, especially when it's profaned by his people. This is a bigger picture of God than we typically get. This is a God who takes his holiness very seriously, isn't it? And before we start to think maybe this is a harsh picture of God, you realize the Bible tells us that we are all riddled with abominations. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, right? But we are. That's why we have to have a, a time of public confession every worship service because each of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Each of us deserves to be cut out of his people and cast off. And you realize that what we know that they didn't is that Jesus Christ, the rescuer, came and Jesus Christ himself absorbed this specific punishment for us. I want to share with you from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. Looking to the coming Messiah, he tells us this, as he was cut off out of the land of the living. Same exact phrase, stricken for the transgressions of my people. 
See, for you and I who are riddled with idolatrous thoughts and actions, Jesus Christ actually came in and he cut that out for us. He was cut out for us. Now, before you think, well, I don't know if I'm an idolater. I wouldn't take it that far. Okay, yeah, don't think about idolatry being primitives around a totem right somewhere, okay? Let's take that off. Here's what idolatry looks like for us. Martin Luther said it this way. You and I never break commandments two through 10 without first going to commandment one and saying, no, thank you. That whole no other gods before me. Because see, this God, he says, well, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, don't commit adultery, all that stuff. And we're like, I want that. And so I'm gonna get a God that lets me do that. So I'm gonna get rid of this first commandment. And in the ancient world, they would find an idol. What you and I do, we put ourselves, say, I'm God, I'm in charge. I get to determine who I am. You don't get to tell me who I am. My authenticity is more important than anything else, so I feel authentic committing adultery. Who are you to tell me otherwise? It's idolatry just the same. You and I do it every day, every time we decide God's ways are not best right now. I will worship myself as God instead. And Jesus Christ was cut out of the land of the living to cover that abomination for us. What an amazing thought that in the gospel, instead of us being cut off, Jesus was cut off. So that unlike these men in verse 12, we can actually come to worship the Lord of hosts knowing that we are absolutely faithless, but Jesus is faithful. And so united to him, like we talked about earlier, we're counted as faithful before God. And we so need that because faithless people break promises in order to bind themselves to a beloved idol. So now we're going to start to see, starting in verse 13 and moving forward, we're going to start to see the second horrible thing that they have done in God's family. It's not just that these men engaged in idolatrous marriages, as bad as that is. What's really bad is that in order to do so, they first engaged in cruel, cruel divorces. We're going to see hypocritical divorces, starting in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. See, they ignored his commands. They knew they were ignoring his commands and they still came to worship fervently because they treated him just like any other little God out there. That's what's so abominable about it. They were profaning his holiness doing this. And here's how we know this is accurate. Because in the ancient pagan understanding, offerings were guaranteed to work. In the ancient Near East, remember these people we're talking about, they're basically recovering Babylonians. It's been close to 80 years since they've done this. All they know is Babylon for most of them. They've forgotten what it means to be faithful. And so for these recovering Babylonians, thinking like their culture, our offerings up to gods were their food. They needed us. And so they were hungry. We fed them. They give us the stuff. That's how this thing works. And yet here, it's not working. And so what they do, instead of stepping back and biblically engaging in repentance, they practiced the pagan worship style, which emphasized if it's not working, it's because you haven't got the God's attention yet. So you need to 
do all the stuff to get, the, to get God's attention. You have to be really exuberant. You have to have a lot of emotionalism. You gotta cry, you gotta weep, you gotta hurt yourself. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, remember the story where Elijah takes on all those prophets of Baal on Mount, Mount Carmel? If you know the, the battle, we'll call it, in the middle of the battle, nothing's happening until Elijah starts trash talking, goes, hey, uh, maybe Baal's asleep. Uh, maybe Baal is busy. Fun fact, literal translation, Maybe Baal's using the bathroom. You gotta wait. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh. It's funny. Anyway, they start cutting themselves. They start wailing and moaning and caterwauling because you gotta wake the God up. You gotta get the God's attention. If the offering's not working, you gotta put more of yourself into it. Weeping, mourning, misery. The more overblown, the better. And they were bringing that paganism into the temple in worship, going, we're doing all the stuff, man. We are weeping and wait. What do you mean God doesn't accept it? Who does he think he is? This is one of the things I really appreciate about how Mike has organized our worship service. Mike is more well-read on worship than most ordained guys that I know. It was really intimidating when I first got to know. I was like, ooh, I better brush up on this topic. So he knows his stuff. And if you've noticed the kind of worship style he's put it together for us is that the content leads us to exuberance. It's not just empty exuberance, is it? It's not, let's just get you all hyped up. No, the content makes you exuberant. Whatever exuberance looks like for your personality. For some people, exuberance is not very loud, but in your heart, you're going crazy because of the grace of God on display. That's okay. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, you shouldn't have any emotions. We're brains and vats. Don't smile. We're Presbyterians, right? No, okay. I know that's the pressure, okay? But the content leads us to exuberance. It's not exuberance instead of content. See, and we can tell that they were worshiping like pagans because they protest in verse 14. We did all the stuff. We brought our exuberance, we're here, we fed the thing. Why isn't he doing it? What do you mean he doesn't regard our offerings? And I wanna make sure we capture the essence of their answer. So let's look together at the kids' translation of verses 13 and 14. Boys and girls who are still here, it's on page 11. If you wanna look at the kids' translation with me, verse 13 and 14 says this. Here's the other evil thing y'all do. You come to worship with loud cries and long prayers asking for God's help in this hard time. He is not listening to you anymore. Then you dare to ask, why not? Um, hello. God was the witness at your weddings back when you were young. That means when you cast aside your wife now, you are spitting in God's face. If you're bothered, I can defend the crassness of that translation. Let's have coffee and talk about it. See the evil that's happening here. It wasn't just that these men were in these idolatrous marriages, look what came first. They were casting aside their faithful Hebrew wives to do it. All the while walking into the temple, what's up God, it's worship, thinking nothing of it. It's all okay. God doesn't care, we're gonna feed him. See, here's the deeper issue that Malachi wants for us to see, I believe. A couple things, one is neither worship nor marriage are about us. It's not about us. First of all, worship. Look what God says here. I will not receive the worship of my actively hypocritical and unrepentant people, no matter how exuberant. See, the fundamental human religion is what? I create a good record, 
I jump through all of your hoops. Then I present that record to you. I've done the stuff you owe me. That's paganism. That's the essence of pagan worship. And these recovering Babylonians, which is what they were, they brought that to God's worship. And Malachi reminds them, no, sinners need God. God doesn't need sinners. We come needing God. We don't come to a needy God. It's about him. And we come in worship. We know what they didn't. We come in the righteousness of Jesus alone because we're never worthy to come into his presence and worship him. Were it not for the covering that Jesus himself gives us. Sure, add your enthusiasm if you want to. Please do. But never rest in your enthusiasm because it's not about you. It's about what he has done. Second thing, marriage is not about us. Sounds kind of silly. It's like, well, it's two people getting married. It's not about us. Wedding, even to this day, weddings are a covenant. God is there, and God holds people to their vows. He's the third-party enforcer of that covenant. It is the way that transcendentally gives glory to God. In fact, one of the reasons that marriage is under assault in our culture, and people don't even know this, they don't, they don't even know why they viscerally react to it. I'll give you a hint. Ready? This is for free. It's the only place in Western culture where the Trinity is acknowledged and glorified. When a Christian minister, under the authority of the state, Christ as king, does the ceremony, Christ as prophet, and pronounces it finished, Christ as king. Christ in all three of his offices, under the authority of the Trinity, publicly binds a wedding. Our culture pauses and recognizes the Trinity exists. That's one of the reasons people viscerally react to it. Because even if they can't articulate that, they don't want the Trinity glorified and Jesus exonerated as, in his key, as uh, prophet, priest, and king. Because marriage is not about us. It's about God. He's the third party enforcer. And notice what else is amazing here. Notice how progressive in a good way this is. For the ancient Near Eastern understanding, the idea that your wife was your companion, it means friend, it means partner. And then to call it treachery, faithlessness, if you cast her aside, unheard of in the ancient Near East. See, but in God's family, his daughters are not mere property to be cast aside when you're done with them. Not in God's house. Not just because women are created in the image of God as well and therefore worthy of dignity, but also because what the verse tells us next, that marriage is bigger than us. It's not about us and it's bigger than us. Look with me at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He points here to the transcendental, we'll call it, nature of marriage. It's bigger than us. It always has been bigger than us. Back in Genesis 2.24, when God invented marriage or unveiled marriage, let's call it, he says, the two shall become one. It's a weird thing to say. And it's not here to the very end of the Old Testament. He tells us how he does it in Malachi 2.15. He actually gives a portion of his own spirit into this thing to make that happen. It's bigger than us. But the other thing that makes it so huge is that the verse tells us that God has a purpose for marriage. Did you catch that? You ask the question, what is God seeking? We could literally translate it, what is God securing? 
And the answer is godly offspring. This is so much bigger than just having godly kids. Well, that's super important. Literally, he says, what is God securing? The godly seed. Now, if you've been around Sycamore for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about this, but I want to do some review real quick. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God pronouncing the curse says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So two groups. This is the word for seed, same word. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Then all of a sudden it goes to singular. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, God says, there's gonna come one, a singular person from the woman who will crush the serpent and undo what you've just done. You're gonna, you're gonna wound him greatly. You're gonna bite his heel in this process. But one will come one day, someday to undo this. And so the rest of the Old Testament is these two seeds hating each other and the seed of the serpent trying to stop the promise of God from coming. And God's purpose in marriage, it says right here, is to secure that seed. That's why this intermarriage with the pagans was so dangerous because it imperiled the coming redeemer. These men had become tools of Satan to stop Jesus from being born. Now that's not just me grabbing a bunch of theology and shoving it back onto this text. This is in the text. Let's all look together at the kids version of verse 15. Here, here's how, how we chose to translate it. God put part of his spirit into our marriages to make two people into one. He did this because he's using our family to bring about the promised rescuer. So watch out for your life because breaking promises you made to God is dangerous. See, being faithful to their wedding vows, their marriage covenant, honored the higher reality of marriage, but it also helped to bring about the one who would secure them from their sin, who would rescue them. That's why it's so dangerous for these men to break their promises. And then we get to verse 16. And before we look at it, I gotta I got tell you something I should have said earlier. Verse 15 and 16 are considered by scholars across the spectrum to be probably two of the hardest verses in the Old Testament. The Hebrew is just rough, okay? Um, the gist of these two verses is pretty much universally agreed upon. I'm not saying we don't know what they say, but the specific verbiage is up for grabs. So if you have different translations from the ESV, you're gonna see all sorts of crazy stuff out there. I just wanna put that out there so you don't get confused, okay? So with that, let's look at the ESV of verse 16. It says this. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless or a more literal, less good English, bad English translation is he divorces because of hate, so he shall cover his clothes with violence, says the Lord of hosts. See, what he's pointing out here, what he's, the gist of what he's trying to say is this, such a selfish act of casting off your partner, your friend, your companion, it left you, it's, it's like you wrapped yourself in violence. We don't use that image, so we don't really get it, we would say today, you've got blood on your hands because you hated your wife so much. That's the image that want, you, want they want. It's, it's an act of actual violence. It's also the word, it's, it's translated violence. It's also translated as false a lot of places, as in do not bear false witness in the Ten Commandments. 
In the days of Noah before the flood, the Lord looked at the earth and he saw it was covered in this word, evil, cruelty, violence, falsehood, however you want to translate it. The New Living Translation has for verse 16 this, to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. See, there would be few in Malachi's day who would be more helpless than a middle-aged, divorced, Hebrew exile woman. And our God cares for the weakest. One of his favorite Old Testament titles for himself is a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. And our protecting God gets riled up when his daughters are treated so poorly. Casting, them as, casting aside a faithful wife is cruel, evil, violent, he says. To a culture that saw wives as property and like, what's the big deal? He comes and says, no, it's a blatant repudiation of the covenant of marriage. And it's a total wrecking of the transcendental nature of marriage. Boys and girls, again, this is some heavy stuff. I want to make sure you're tracking with me. So let's look at your verse 16, the bottom of page 11. Here's how I translated it. Maybe y'all can understand this better. It says, listen, it is hatred to cast aside your wife. Our strong God says you are wrapping yourself in evil when you do it. So watch out for your life because breaking promises you made to God is dangerous. See, it's dangerous because marriage is bigger than them. It's not just that the divorces are cruel and hypocritical, they are, but that these men have become tools of Satan being used to inflict violence in the community and to stop becoming Messiah. And in so doing, they have wrapped themselves in evil. What an image. See, their project of safety, the whole reason they did this mess, their project of security through these pagan marriages will fail as they perish in their evil-soaked lives. They are in danger. Well, let me wrap this up. This passage talks about divorce, obviously, but it's not about divorce. It's about God being the one who is trustworthy and thus worthy of our worship. And he is trustworthy because he has kept the promise of verse 16, hasn't he? He did secure the godly seed. And so now in his rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will trust in him, you can be safe from this danger. We're twice told at the end of this passage, at the end of verse 15, at the end of verse 16, to guard your life, protect your life, find somewhere to hide your life. And the New Testament book of Colossians tells us that our life can be hidden in Christ himself. Secure, safe, what we long for. See, this passage really does ultimately point to Jesus who himself was cut off from God's people as the abomination when our sins were placed upon him. He was labeled a faithless transgressor, subject to violence. And he even wrapped himself in the garment of his people's evil so that as the promised seed of the woman, he could guard our lives by paying the penalty for our sins, by making us his bride, witnessed by the Holy Spirit, making us one people under the one God, called his beloved, and then welcomed into God's very holiness because of what he has done. Oh, as I try to show you every week, I hope you see it here. This passage makes us long for Jesus because we can't do this without him.
And then it makes us rejoice about the victory that is in Jesus because he has done it for us. Trust in this Jesus. Be secure in his victory. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is Christianity. Not come and be exuberant and impress God, but come recognizing you can't impress God. But you can place your faith and trust in Jesus who did. And united to him, God can actually be wild about you as well. That's yours in the gospel. And then for those of us Christians here, we'd be remiss if we didn't look at the obvious teaching of this passage and say, live in the reality of the husband love of Jesus. And then based in that love, men, you and I are empowered to love our wives as Christ loves the church, giving ourselves up for her. All All that these marriages were meant to be but failed at is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then the reality of Jesus is then demonstrated back out to the world through Christian marriages. Divorce stinks. So men empowered by Jesus, love your wives. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for hard, challenging texts because we know your word is authoritative and cuts to the very core of who we are. So we ask, Father God, today what has been said that's true, you'll burn into our hearts. And what's been said that's not true, you'll help us forget immediately. Lord, we pray for those of us who know you that you would help us to rest in the husband love of Jesus and that we would come and worship you in spirit and truth in him, not trying to offer you our exuberance or our works, but instead resting in Christ alone. We pray that we would trust you, Lord. And Lord, we pray for those here today who do not know you, that you would make Jesus so beautiful to them that they would long to taste and see that you were good and that you would open up the paths of life and show them your grace. We pray this, Lord, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.